Graham Staines was an Australian missionary. Since 1965, he'd worked in northern India, amongst lepers and with the poor. And on the 22nd of January 1999, he attended an annual gathering of Christians in West Bengal. And that night, because of the cold, he decided to spend the night in his truck, along with his sons Philip, aged 10, and Timothy, aged 6. While they slept, a mob of about 50 people armed with axes and other implements attacked the vehicle and set it alight. Although Graham Staines and his sons tried to escape, they were deliberately trapped inside and burnt to death. What would you have said to his widow Gladys and to the remaining child Esther? What words of comfort could you have brought? What answers would you have given? And the reality is there are many of us listening to this who've been through similar situations, probably not to the degree that Gladys faced, but still with those hurting, nagging questions that are never far from the surface. God, where were you? God, why did you allow this to happen? God, don't you care about me or care about your reputation? Because you've known the deep grief of losing a loved one to an early grave or you've been deserted or abused by the one you thought was your life's partner, or ill health has brought all your dreams crashing down. You don't say it out loud. You don't admit it to your Christian friends. But the question's there. Why on earth did God allow that to happen if he is who he says he is? Well, that's what the prophet Habakkuk was struggling with. He lived in desperate times, when the nation of Judah was ignoring God's gracious rule and following instead the practices of their corrupt king Jehoiakim. And to make matters worse, God had told Habakkuk that the cruel and wicked Babylonians were coming to execute his holy judgment. God, how can this be? How can you allow this? It makes no sense. It goes against everything I've ever understood about you. And last week, we left Habakkuk waiting for an answer. What would God say to him? And what would he say to hurting people like us? Well, God does answer. And he wants everyone to know what he's saying. Verse 2, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Now, it's not entirely clear what this means, but several experts suggest that there were public notice boards in central Jerusalem where news was pasted up. And it seems that Habakkuk is being told to publicize this message to make sure everyone knows what God is saying. And people reading those words would then be able to go and pass it on to others. And the message is all to do with the division there exists in this world between those who trust in God and those who trust in themselves. 
chapter 2, verse 4c, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness or by faith. See, that's the heart of this message. It's a straight call between trusting in your own resources, what is described here as the puffed up enemy, or trusting in God, living by faith. Of course, action is absolutely futile. The other is gloriously comforting. And that's demonstrated throughout the rest of chapter 2, which contains five woes. Uh, Have a look for them. They're there in verse 6 and verse 9, verse 12, verse 15 and verse 19. Can you see them? Can you see that word woe there? See, each of these five sections identifies an area where people look to themselves rather than God. And each section also shows how such behaviour is self-destructive. Let me show you what I mean. The first section of woes is in verses 6 to 8. I've called it self-destructive trust in possessions. Verse 6, it says, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. And what's the outcome? It's there in verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. You see, your money won't save you. The second section of woes is in verses 9 to 11. I've called it self-destructive trust in protection. Verse 9, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You see, that's what you do. You build your fortified home on the highest point to repel attackers. (laughs) Here in Edinburgh, we live in a city built up around such a construction. But what's the outcome? Verse 10, you've plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. You see, ultimately, your castles won't save you. The third section of woes is found in verses 12 to 13. It's what I've called self-destructive trust in power. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. You see, that's the resort of the tyrant, the dictator, the rule of fear and violence. Set your own rules, appoint your own judges. But what's the outcome? There in verse 13, has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel from the, for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Exhausted for nothing. Building a statue for yourself that will only get pulled down by the liberators. The fourth section is in verses 15 to 17. We've called it self-destructive trust in pleasure. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Abusive perversions, using others for your own pleasure. And what's the outcome? Verse 16, you'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. Disgrace will cover your glory. You see, abusers and users will find the tables turned on them. 
The fleeting pleasure they try to achieve will prove empty and bitter. And then the fifth section of woes is in verses 18 to 19. We've called it self-destructive trust in peace. Verse 18, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. How do you cover your guilty conscience? You create idols or religions that you're in control of. And they'll say just what you want to hear. But what's the outcome? Verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. It's useless. It's silent. It can't help. It may look impressive, but there's nothing to it. It has no substance. So here's the tension. Here's the divide. You either put your trust in God or you put your trust in what can be achieved through your own efforts. And if you choose the second option, then be prepared to face the consequences for such a choice. And as the people in Habakkuk's time walked by the public notice board in Jerusalem and saw these woes written up, they'd feel uncomfortable. They probably knew that Habakkuk had been told the Babylonians were coming to destroy their city and take them captive into exile. And they could see that these woes seemed to be addressed primarily to that coming invader. The Babylonians certainly seemed to fit the description. But the revelation from Habakkuk didn't name them. What's written down, it's actually addressed not to the Babylonians, but to the enemy in verse 4. And it's clear that God's enemy is not just the Babylonian invader, but is anyone who chooses to go their own way, do their own thing, and rely on their own ideas. And we know that Habakkuk's original complaint had been about the people living in Judah, in Jerusalem, who we're told in chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, were people of injustice, of people of wrongdoing, where destruction and violence and strife were commonplace. They had become people who did indeed trust in their own possessions and protection and power and pleasures and peace. They were being described in these verses, as well as the Babylonians. And lest we're sitting here feeling too comfortable. You see, there's a third horizon to these words, and it embraces us. We're the enemy of God if we trust in our own efforts rather than rely upon him. And if we're honest, the description of people who rely upon their own possessions and protection and power and pleasures and peace, that perfectly describes our society today. And the great danger that so many of us face is that we've been compromised into thinking the way the world around us thinks. We're placing our confidence and hope in what this world provides. We so value our possessions. We love the protection our insurance policies provide. We'll fight viciously to get our own way. We'll secretly pursue our illicit pleasures away from the gaze of others. And we'll shape our religious ideas to suit us, rather than submitting completely to God's word. 
So there's the choice that Habakkuk lays before his readers. What will we do? Will we put our trust in what we can see and achieve? Or will we live by faith? Whatever the external circumstances. See, that's why Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's actually repeated a couple of times in the New Testament as well. Have a look at verse 4 again. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And as we've said earlier, that Hebrew word faithfulness actually isn't the easiest word to translate because it falls between two of our English expressions. And in fact, it's used in those two ways where we find it quoted in the New Testament. For example, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. He writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There it is. And there it refers to saving faith. It's what happens when I place all my trust and hope and confidence in what Jesus did for me on the cross. Saving faith. But look at how the writer to the Hebrews uses the same quotation. It's in Hebrews 10, and I'll read from verse 36 through to verse 39, where he writes, You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, and here's the quote, My righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And here, the expression is being used not in the sense of saving faith, you know, that moment in time when you committed yourself to Christ absolutely, but rather here it has the sense of sanctifying faith, the faith that keeps on trusting and keeps on obeying and keeps on persevering. And you see, there's no real division between the two. The faith that saves is the faith that perseveres. The faith that looked to Jesus as saviour is the faith that keeps looking to him through all the changing scenes of life, to quote the old hymn. And what's wonderful about the revelation that God gave to hurting Habakkuk is that there are two verses woven into this chapter that encourage such a faith. Do you want to know how you might be a person of faith? Well, firstly, have a look at verse 14, because we notice that faith is anchored in the future. Faith is anchored in the future. It says there, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In fact, this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 11, which was written about a hundred years previously. And it comes from a passage there in Isaiah that is pointing forward to the coming Messiah, the one we know as Jesus. That's probably why in Habakkuk we find the expression, the glory, added to the original quote. 
for its shorthand for the promised rescuer, this Messiah, this Jesus. Now, <laughs> I realise, look, this might sound like a boring detail to you, but actually it's wonderfully exciting. Jesus is coming to reign. His kingdom will be complete and absolute, filling all creation. And that's why we should be people of faith. We know how it ends. We know that Jesus is king. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It may not always look like that, but the arc of world history moves inexorably toward that coming kingdom. But there's another verse here at the end of this chapter that also builds our faith. For it's not only that faith is anchored in the future, it's that faith is confident in the present. Faith is confident in the present. It's there in verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Hebrew used here is like us saying hush or shush. The sound conveys the meaning. Be quiet. Stop talking. God is on the throne. He's in control. His character hasn't changed. It's time to stop your grumbling and complaining and simply to rest in his majestic, infinitely wise, gracious love and power. Shush. God is at work. Trust him. Have faith in him. You don't need to turn to any of the lesser gods or fake idols of this world. Rest in him. Well, would you do that? Maybe like Habakkuk, you've got your questions about what God is up to. But maybe like Habakkuk, the time has come to be quiet, to trust him, to believe that the ruler of time and the universe knows what he's doing. Gladys Staines, the day after her husband Graham and their two sons had been burnt to death by the mob, said this, in the midst of all her pain, grief and questions, she said, I am deeply upset, but I am not angry, for Jesus has taught us how to love our enemies. Her words were reported in all the Indian newspapers and on news channels around the world. And looking back, many wise observers have noted that the rise in the remarkable growth of the church in that region can be attributed to those words of a middle-aged, grieving Australian widow. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray. Sovereign Father, we do indeed want to be quiet before you. We can be so full of so many questions, so many complaints, so much stuff we don't understand. Lord, you know, last week we were talking about lamenting, speaking out our complaints, and thank you that your word encourages us to do that. But we also realise, Father, that as with Habakkuk, he moved from lament to the cry to be quiet, to be silent, to wait upon you. Thank you that you do rule. We trust you in that, Lord. By faith, we believe that. We don't always see it. But Father, we do believe that gloriously you are ruling and reigning. And we believe that one day King Jesus is going to return. 
and everyone's going to see him. Uh, and every tongue will have to confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee will have to bow. Father, we thank you that we're going to be amongst those who welcome that day with gladness and joy as we welcome our Saviour. But we realise there are many who will be bowing the knee and saying those words oh, with such regret that they hadn't acknowledged it during their lifetime. And Father, we do pray for those listening in to us this evening who do not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, who, who are still trusting to all they can do to get the happiness and the joy and the security that they want and yet are being bitterly betrayed and disappointed by all they're trying to achieve. Father, even now, would you point them to a wonderful Saviour who came to be their sin bearer, the one who would rescue them, the one who would deliver them, the one who came to die for failures upon a cross so that sins could be forgiven. Thank you for Jesus. And may each one of us know what it is to know him in saving faith. And, and Lord, for those of us who do know you in this way, who are trusting you, grant that we would be people of sanctifying faith, that we would go on holding on to you, persevering through the pain, through the tears, through the questions. For we want you to get the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.